This show is an ultimate podcast group production. Hey, this is Live Better with Natasha with me, Natasha Hamilton. This podcast is all about exploring your mental, physical and spiritual wellness. Live Better with Natasha is for anyone who is looking to broaden their horizons with their wellness, who want to heal, they want to grow, and they want to feel on top of the freaking world. So please welcome to the Live Better with Natasha podcast, footballer and two times cancer survivor, Joe Thompson. Joe, it's an absolute honour to have you with me on the podcast today. How are you? I'm really well, thank you, Natasha. Yeah, I'm... uh... I feel like I'm privileged, you know, to be invited <laughs> on. And I think, you know, what you're doing is amazing. And yeah, long may it continue. Oh, thank you so much. So for the listeners out there, um, I met Joe's wife, Chantelle, a few years ago through mutual friends. We kind of went for a lunch. Yeah. We talked about beauty because a few years back I was doing beauty and we've just stayed in touch. We've stayed connected. Um, and then a few weeks ago, we just so all happened to be in Cyprus at the same time. And we met up, we had a lovely lunch on, on the um right on the waterfront with yourself and Chantel and your little gorgeous daughter, Lula. She is stunning and she will be breaking hearts when she's older. Oh, don't <laughs> worry, we're ready for that. And she'll get her own heart broken and we'll make sure we're there to sort oh, it out. <laughs> I know, but it was so lovely to hook up with you when we were away and we were talking about the podcast and here we are today. So, Joe. You have got an incredible story. I've actually been reading your book, which is called Darkness and Light, My Story. And this literally takes people back to the beginning. You've been very honest about your life, where you started out, your family, your background, um, the highs and lows that life has thrown at you. Like literally from reading the first chapter, um, I had goosebumps because you can't beat authenticity. You know when someone's being real, um, it will resonate with people. Um, just having that nowheres and graces, like, look, this is this is what happened to me. This is where I'm from, and this is the, the these are the challenges life's thrown at me. But I've, I've I've succeeded. I've got through the other side. You've got an amazing story of hope, of resilience, of determination, and that's what I want the the listeners to hear today no problem we'll give it to them then. okay so let's go right back to the beginning so people listening now will probably know you as a professional footballer yep um well I think that's that is the story in a nutshell when I initially got approached to do the book I know that I've maybe not had a career that I maybe should have had or what people within football you know, potentially say I could have done. But I also know that I've learned so much along the way. I know I've not had an ideal uh, upbringing and, you know, ideal life to be successful, but I'm never going to make that an excuse and I'll never make it define who I am. So if I take you back originally, um, I've got a Manchester accent now, uh, but I was born down in Bath. And any time you say to anybody, you know, you're born down in Bath and they've been and they've visited, they'll go, wow, what a wonderful, beautiful place. Mm. Uh, very affluent area, um, quite expensive. And when you've got nothing, what well, we didn't have, I say we, I say my mum, 
um, and my younger brother. It's a tough place to live. Um, and my mum, I think it's really important that I, I stress this at the start. She's my inspiration because I've watched my mum suffer from mental health from the age of eight. So we got a knock on the the, the door. We lived in like a little high-rise flats. You can picture it. Um, Paper-thin walls. But my mum, just a magical woman. And we got a knock on the door and it was two doctors. The two doctors had come to take my mum and section her and put her on a psychiatric ward. And for me and my younger brother sat on the sofa at the time, that was if not one of the first memories that I had, quite a traumatic experience. I'd watched my younger brother a couple of years ago prior get run over outside the school gates. Um, and to see a little two-year-old uh, covered in blood and, you know, tire marks, still, I can still vividly see it in my memory. So I know that it's not the ideal upbringing, but I'm also humble enough to understand that People have been through similar experiences and, you know, all that hardship and that adversity initially is probably what's made me deal with life challenges later down the line. But to see her get taken away and that uncertainty and not knowing what was going to happen um, was terrifying. And I know a neighbour came down from upstairs and uh, tried to console us and make sure that we was all right. And then my auntie came down from uh, just outside of Manchester and took us up on a train while my mum was receiving care in hospital down in Bath. And that's where the, the journey, I would say, uh, up north uh, started. And my auntie came down to stop us from going into social care and social services because my dad's never really been around and I've never really had that real male role model in my life that I've, I've craved and needed at certain times because he's been in and out of prison for the last 20, 25 years. Yeah. And that's moving from a place like Bath, you know, it's, it's a town, isn't it? Is it a uh, well, town or is it Bath a city? Is probably is classed as a small city. Yeah, it is a small, small city. But- yeah. But compare you compared that with Manchester, which is like, you know, an industrial up north, huge, huge city. Um, the contrast for that move at eight with everything else that was going on in your life, it must have been, you know, that's that's gonna be a lot to take on as a young a young boy. Uh, definitely. Um, and you know, just not knowing when you was going to see your mum next, but then having to deal with changing of school, that whole culture shift. I remember when I first originally went to school up north, it was um, an eye opener because I've been brought up in Bath, a very multicultural, very free and liberal um, city. And to come outside of uh, Manchester to Rochdale, first encountered racism. So I was like, wow, you know, never really looked at it like this because I'd never seen anybody different. Mm. Um, And that was tough to take. And just trying to fit into a new community and try and make friends was uh, challenging. And I think I really channeled it into football. 
so that's where my footballing journey really started and initially it was just to fit in with the kids and you know try and make some friends and I suppose Manchester was very all about grassroots you know football going on everywhere there's lots of different clubs around that area so did you do well in your book you say you didn't really play football like when you got to Manchester you didn't know the rules you didn't know what was going on but you were good you were fast you could run (laughs) yeah and that was it I was always very athletic and very uh, gifted in that sense and for me it was either running or football Um, and I was very good at both but at the age of nine um, I think it was probably six months while we'd been up in Manchester and then my mum after a few months came up and joined us and we moved on to a little council estate and a little two up two down and that was just magical to me because I'd got my mum back. Um, but then my life really did change because, like you say, I found out that I was very good at football. Um, and within the space of a few months, Manchester United came calling and, and you wow. know, they offered me a trial and an opportunity to sign for them. I know my mum was very, very reluctant, though, at the time because she obviously understood what was going on and what had gone on, and she knew the likelihood of me making it at Man United was slim, to say the least. Um, so she was reluctant, but we signed the papers, and you know, I was I was over the moon with that. It was literally the golden ticket, the Willy Wonka, you know, every boy's <laughs> dream. And you start to aspire to be like the likes of Ryan Giggs, David Beckham, you know, the Neville's, Paul Scholes, because Sir Alex Ferguson was at the helm. And they were doing unbelievable. You know, they went on and won the treble in 99. And for any young kid in that academy, it was uh, it was just a magical time. But one thing when I look back at my time at Man United is I still do work with them now. And they taught me so much as a man. You know, certain coaches I still speak to on a regular basis because... Obviously, you're there to, you know, improve your game, but the standards that were set, um, you know, on a personal level was uh, to the highest and mm. something that I'm ever so grateful for. Do you feel like that might, or does it ever become a problem when you've got standards that are so high <laughs> in everyday life, like high achievers, people who are really good at what they do, the top of the game, they often find that having that super high standard can be detrimental at times. Yeah, and that was what came coming, you know, it was around the corner. I remember I was there from nine to just before my 16th birthday and my auntie got the call and my mum got the call because those were the two that would always take me to training. And he just said, look, we're going to release Joe. Uh, We obviously want him to come in. Uh, I think it was on a Tuesday or a Thursday night and... We'll explain why, but physically I wasn't developing. And, you know, at that age, some, you know, lads shoot up and I wasn't able to impact the game nowhere near enough. So it did, it all came crashing down. And probably my biggest learning curve mm. uh, in my career and to happen at that 15, 16 year period, it was, uh, again, it was so tough because... You'd been, I would say, tagged and branded as 
the next best thing. And mm. I often think when I look back at school, the corridors used to part for me. Everyone wanted to say hello. Everyone wanted to ask me, you know, how I'd gotten at the weekend. I was always going on trips abroad to play in tournaments. And within a sentence and, you know, having that conversation with the coaches, it maybe was a bit of paranoia as well, but I just felt like every, my life just changed, you know. It, kids, it will, yeah. Yeah, it, it did. It, it will did. do, but you're, you're, you're being treated as a man, but you've still got that child brain in, in a way. Like, you're still only 16, but yeah. you've been treated as, as an adult for many years. And I think I didn't maybe emotionally know how to deal with it at that time, so... Were you was, given any help to deal with that? You know, credit to Man United, they broke it to me the best they could. I think they mm-hmm. were just giving my mum my and my auntie the heads up prior to it. And they did it with an element of class. And, you know, they said, if you do need any help, we are here for you. Um, but at that moment in time, I was like, forget you guys. You know, I maybe had that sense of feeling unworthy now and... You know, my confidence took a massive knock, I know for a fact. And in the middle of all of this, I'm starting my GCSEs. So I'd had the teachers wow. throughout my whole <laughs> school years telling me, you know, make sure you you keep your head in the books and make sure you stick with the work. And I'd batted them off to a certain degree, practicing my signature in the back of the book, thinking I'm <laughs> going to be a footballer. And, you know, it hit me oh. flush in the face. So I really had to get my ass into gear and, you know, focus on my GCSEs because I needed a plan B. Although I still wanted to be a professional footballer, it wasn't happening at this moment in time and I needed to deal with a few things before I could, I would say, learn to trust myself and my ability. Because it did it. My confidence took a massive blow and I didn't tell anyone for weeks my friends would knock on and say, look, are you, are you coming out? Um, and I'd be like, no, 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 I've got training and tell a little porcupine just because I just shut myself in my room. And I know when I speak to my mum, she was like, I, I didn't know what to do with you because you were just lost. Um, and there was nothing that I could really do to fill that void. And I spoke to a PE teacher, I confided in my PE teacher, I'd got a good relationship at school. And he said, what's up with you? I've just, I can see something's not right. Um, And I just kind of broke down to him and said, I've been released. And he was like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's not the be all and end all. There is more to life than football. But at that moment in time, I was just fixated and focused with trying to be a professional footballer. And then he just said to me, why don't you go down to Rochdale? And I was like, oh, no disrespect, sir. You know, I've got Liverpool looking at me, Blackburn, Bolton, all these teams that we've spoken about in the Northwest, all wanting to have a look at me. I've got options. And I went to Wigan and um, I trained at Wigan for a little bit. And then we arrived at a training session on a Tuesday night and it had been cancelled and they'd not told us. So we talk about those standards. That's when I knew I dropped down a level and just, you know, the simple act of communicating and letting everybody know. Um, my, my, I, my head just went, just lost it. I lost all faith in football um, because I just couldn't get my head around why I'd not been told. Um, 
And that was because of those standards like we spoke about. It was set at Man yeah. United so high and anything else that fell short of it, um, you know, class it as a chip on the shoulder. Yeah. And I really did have that at that time. So we, what happened next? Like, where did you turn? How so, did you get through that emotional battle of, am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? Where do I fit in? So I took the teacher's advice, you know, he said, why don't you go and be that big fish in a, a small pond um, and try and build your confidence up. So I did. And obviously the standard's not the same as Manchester United at Rochdale, but I soon found that confidence in my ability. And although I wasn't physically developing, I could still um, thrive at that level. So I did that. And when I spoke to the academy manager at the time, Keith Hill, he said, look, they want to fast you into the fast track you into the first team by the age of 17. So that was music to my ears that, um, but I wasn't physically ready to be thrown into, you know, a real men's environment. Um, and we was playing league two at the time. So it was a uh, cutthroat, but as I developed and, you know, got myself in a gym and built my strength up, that confidence came with it. And uh, I started playing professional football at the age of 17. But wow. again, massive learning curve because from academy football to um, professional, you know, elite athletes, I just couldn't get my head around. Some of these guys were putting food on the table um, for their families. And we talk about wages, you know, they're not the greatest in lower league, um, but you're playing your, the game that you love and you're getting paid for it. So mm. I, I, I could, I could stomach that definitely, but I understood the severity and, you know, the seriousness of it. Those three points on a weekend and match bonuses and win bonuses were, were life changing to some players. So, yeah, you really had to get to grips with it. Um, I suppose us as the spectators of the sport, we don't really think about how much you're putting on the line every time you go out there. Like every time you go out, if you get injured and you set back, you know, that's going to impact not only just on you, but your family and, you know, maybe wages that you're taking home or bonuses that you're not getting. And <laughs> there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we... <laughs> don't really take into consideration yeah and sometimes when I sit in the stands and I and I listen to fans uh, I may know something that's gone on in the background with a certain player you know the the mum might have been taken to hospital for something yeah. or the, the, the child's been up all night on a Friday night being sick um, so I'd always say you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but sometimes you don't know what's going on in the background and you don't know what they're mentally uh, struggling with. Um, but for me, football was always, when I crossed that white line, it was 90, 90 or so minutes for me often to put my troubles and, you know, my issues that's going on in life aside I would say for 90 minutes mm. and try and be free and let the shackles off and enjoy just playing the game that you love uh, it was very very difficult because my mum was first diagnosed when I was 8 but for the last 23 years she's been in and out of hospital and there was sometimes times when I would play and 
I'd been up all night on the Friday, you know, trying to calm her down or sometimes trying to find her because she'd just go for a wander. And hmm. it was just um, it's not tough. ideal. It was tough to say the least, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was. I can, Joe, I can totally relate. Like our jobs have been similar. You know, my stage was the stage. The pitch was your stage. Yep. It's a performance. Yep. You're on show to thousands, if not millions of people. Mm-hmm. And for me, singing and performing was my escapism. But then when I was having my own life traumas, it then became increasingly difficult to be the performer and then the actress. It's hard because to hide I, I, it, isn't it? Because yeah. it's like, well, I'm, I've got to sing now and also I've got to act. I've got to pretend everything's fine. And that becomes like a massive load and a burden on your shoulders. And then if you're not getting the help that you need and you're not getting the rest that you need, like mentally, and you're on that relentless um, promo trail, should we say, it's, you know, you start to buckle under the pressure of what's needed from you. So, you know, I can totally relate with what you're saying. And I just want to fast forward a little bit now because... You were first diagnosed with cancer at the age of 24. Yeah. What was the lead up to that diagnosis? Like, had you been playing? Were you feeling unwell? Yeah. So I, I was at Rochdale for five years, so from 17 to yeah, 22, 23. And I'd met Chantel. He's obviously my partner, my wife, um, when I was 21. And we had Lula on the way. So the pressures of, you know, becoming a father uh, were really on my shoulders. And I moved to Tranmere. Um, they came in with quite a substantial bid and the club accepted it. And when they accept it, you feel like you're half out the door. But I felt at that time it was the right move for me and the right time for me to, you know, transition because... I was at that point in my life where I really did need to grow up and, you know, embrace the responsibilities. But I think in the back of my mind, subconsciously, I was always worried that I was going to be not a terrible dad, but I wasn't going to be able to live up to the demands and responsibilities. So there was pressure that I put on myself. Um, you know, I didn't have <laughs> There's a clue. that high standard yeah, kicking yeah, in again. I, I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> And it stems from, I now know, you know, not having my own dad around. So I was worried about not being able to love this child because I maybe didn't have that love that I felt from, you know, my own dad. So, yeah. And then with her being a little girl, I was like, I don't have a clue. You know, (laughs) I just started seeing how do we do plats? How do we do this? (laughs) Conversations that we're going to have to have later down the line and, you know, fundamentally, I'm the protector, the provider, the the one that she's going to come to when she's hurt. So all of those things were running around. And she was one when I was first diagnosed. And I'd put in a lot of the, the symptoms down to football, tiredness, fatigue, um, you know, sleepless nights, bottle feeds on the landing. Um mm-hmm. And when I sat down and I, I f- first went for a biopsy, um, I, 
four days later, I go with Chantal and Lula in the pram. And the doctor told me that I got cancer. I was just like, just taken aback. You know, the pain was unbearable. I remember just the gut-wrenching feeling and trying to hold it together whilst I've got this little one that I'm supposed to look after for the rest of her life. And my wife, Chantel, next to me, crying, um, worried that she's going to, you know, lose the love of her life. So I did what every footballer would do. You just put that bravado on. And I said, all right, okay. Um, so what's the plan then? You know, he said, right, so you're going to, you've got Hodgkin's lymphoma, which was a, in effect, a, a cancer of your immune system. I said, okay, yeah. So, and you're going to have to have six months worth of chemotherapy. I said, right. So this was October. I said, I'll be back playing by April. And he was like, no, young man, I think you, you're not understanding the severity of it. Your life is hanging in the balance. Never mind your football career. You're at stage 4S and you've probably had it for two to three years. And then that's when I just like, I just wanted the ground to, to open up and swallow me because I just wanted to run and escape. And I just couldn't, no, I just couldn't. And I just thought to myself, wow, everything that I've been through, um, I'm now worried about having to tell my mum because I know this will rock massively. And I don't know what that will have on her, uh, impact on her mental health. I've got my younger brother who I'm really going to need to step up to the plate because I've always, you know, tried to look after him and when I need him to hold it down for me uh, whilst I'm having treatment. And I've obviously got these two um, right next to me. And again, I'm going to have to tell the footballing world in time and tell the club uh, and my agent. And... Yeah, I just felt like I was right back to when I got released from Man United and I didn't want to tell anyone. And I just wanted to shut myself away in a room and just, you know, cry. Yeah, it's... I mean, how do you even process that there and then? It's something that you're going to have to spend a lot of time coming to terms with, I suppose. Definitely. And the, the worst thing for me was that as a footballer and an athlete, you pride yourself on your body. Uh, and that's like your go-to tool with everything, um, you know, to solve the problems. And you've had, and you've used that body to get to, you know, playing professional football. And fundamentally, there's something eating away inside of you. Um, and then when you go home, you start to read the symptoms. And I was ticking every box, every box. Um, then you start to get really anxious about what's to come because you start reading about, you know, the side effects of chemotherapy and everything that comes with it. And I was going to have to undergo the treatment on a young oncology unit. So, you know, we're talking anybody from 24 down um, to five, six, seven years old will all be having similar treatment on the same ward. And having and being a parent, I could empathize with the parents on the ward but I also really struggled with it mentally because once the footballing world knew and it broke out, it was in the papers, it was on the news, and um, some of these kids knew who I was. So I went in every time I was having treatment on the Monday. 
as like the flag bearer and tried to be the beacon of hope. But we talk about it being draining, you know. Mm. I sat down with a counsellor after a few rounds of chemotherapy because I was always violently sick with it and I could deal with that. But mentally, I wasn't prepared to to see some of the things that I saw. So he mm. said, you know, like, I, I understand you come in with energy, trying to be, you know, smiling and enthusiastic to try and give these young children hope but they're on their own journey and you're really on yours as well and I can see it you're struggling so you know I, I, I spoke to him and you know Chantel spoke to them as well and they put it into perspective and said you know you, you've really got to put yourself in a bubble and just do everything that you can possibly do to to get through the six months and Thankfully for me, after six months, I was put into remission and the relief that we felt on that day was um, incredible because when you're having chemotherapy, you're feeling weaker and weaker as the cycles go by and you're just waiting for it to, you know, be given the green light to get your life back on track. But you just have to wait to the end and have some scans and... Yeah. see what the results are but the results came back yeah they did and uh, it was all good and not only that less than two months later <laughs> you were back <laughs> yeah I I had nothing I'm not going to lie you know Chantel was a hairdresser at the time but she'd taken out the time to, to look after Luda in that first year and was doing an amazing job as well as supporting me, me through the treatment. Um, and we'd hidden a lot from Lula because we, we talk about like energy and what children pick up on. When I was uh, in the hospital receiving treatment, Lula was at a child with or with some, you know, a family member uh, till the next day, really, until I stopped being sick. So I just wanted to get back to playing football. It's everything I knew. It's everything I wanted to do. And I had an opportunity to go play at Berry, And uh, I took that opportunity with both hands. And I remember just putting the headphones in and hitting the roads and, you know, put Rocky on and start getting my body to some sort of shape to ready for pre-season. And where'd you start? Where'd you even start, Joe, with getting back on track after going through chemo? It first... It was just like, bang, right, lights on, football. Um, and there was loads of stuff that I couldn't do. Like, core was really fundamental, but I couldn't do nothing. I was really, I was like, even that was like so tough to get my head around. But I was like, this six months ago, this was easy, you know? Uh, and then running, I would literally do five-minute jog just around the estate to see if I was all right. But then my body and my joints were in agony because obviously the impacting and the pounding is something that I hadn't done. And to look at me, I looked okay, but I would always say my body was like, it was hollow. There was a lot of muscle mm -hmm. wastage and, you know, a lot of, I would say shit in there as well from all the toxins and whatnot. Yeah. So you turned to you turned vegan, didn't you? You looked into that, and I mean, I've I've read so much on it. And as I'm getting old, <laughs> you know, I'm like, mm, you know, I understand it more. But I juiced a lot. Um, yeah. 
particularly the first time round. But then if we fast forward a couple of years, I get back to playing football, play for Berry, play for Carlisle, re-sign at Rochdale, which was a worry to me because I didn't want to tarnish my relationship and what I'd done there prior. You know, I'd played well, scored goals, been promoted. And I was really anxious that I wasn't going to be able to replicate the performances. And then I just happened to go for one more scan three years on now. And it was Christmas Eve when I was diagnosed with cancer the second time. And that's when, like, I really looked into my diet and the feelings were totally different this time around. It was more of naivety first time and ignorance, whereas this time around I knew everything and I'd experienced it as well. And it was just anger. I just wanted to smash the room up. I just couldn't believe like what the doctor had said. And two years is a big marker for anybody that's overcome cancer. And I felt like I was out the woods, you know, three years on. And I'd even gone to the appointment with my um, wash bag ready to train after it. Mm. And they told me that it'd come back and... Had you been feeling sick again? No, so this was, this was my, my main issue that the first time round when I look back, I, I was very, very unwell. Second time round, I had one tumour on my chest, whereas the first time round, I had like watermelon-sized masses of tumours and I, I was riddled. It was everywhere. So to tell me I'd got one tumour, it hurt me even more. And, and I said to the doctor, look, can we not do an operation to to take it out and he said Joe it's um it's too close to your heart you know and if we did an operation we could end up painting this room red and I think you know what that means um and I was like wow um and again I'd got Chantal with me and I just thought we've got to go through all of this again and I'm sure there's going to be more and then he said you're going to have to go undergo two cycles of 24-hour chemotherapy as well as undergo a stem cell transplant where you'll be put in isolation and you will be in a room for six to eight weeks, um, maybe longer. And wow. that was where I was really going to struggle because I understood the power of my support network and I was going to need to draw on them again to get me through it. But having to spend time in isolation was going to be hell on earth to a certain degree. 18 days yeah alone. yeah no no conversation with anyone no so you what you got to do is you you get given a piece of paper to to write down you know four or five visitors um but if anybody's got any coughs or sniffles um risk of infection could be fatal because what a stem cell transplant does it's for the first seven days, they give you the most toxic chemotherapy. And then they reintroduce um, good cells. And it's just a wait and see period then. You know, fingers crossed with a bit of luck, you'll be out in however many days. And that's why they say six to eight weeks, because that's kind of average for, for people to, you know, come out if they do come out. And I remember after day seven, I'd had all the treatment and I was thinking to myself, hmm, wasn't too bad. You know, I was violently sick all the time, but I can deal with that. And I still had my hair and 
after day seven, I fell asleep. And I feel like I fell asleep for probably three days. And I was living off blood transfusions, platelets, um, saline, fluids, and it was just an utter blur. Uh, I remember waking up one morning and my auntie and my mum were in there with Chantal. And they said I could hear him in like in the background saying he's not moved, he's not done anything for hours. Um, is he okay? And obviously the, the doctors and the nurses are coming in every one or two hours checking the machines. Your heart rate, everything, um, because they need to be on guard if anything goes wrong. And I woke up and I said, look, I'm okay. I, I just, you know, just come into terms with it. And when they left, I sat down with Chantel and just said to her, Shan, you know, I'm really in a dark place. And I just want you to know from me if the, the cancer does get on top of me uh, and I, I lose this fight, it, it isn't because I gave up. I would never, ever give up on you and Lula. Um, I'm my mum, I'm my brother. And I just want you to know that. And the problem was we had our first wedding anniversary coming up in the next two days. And Chantelle had lost her dad to cancer six months prior. And I knew how much that had rocked us as a family. And he'd walked down the aisle as one of his last things. He was, he had um, lung cancer and to get him out to a beef where we got married was like a military operation for, for me to see him walk his daughter down the aisle. Um, when I knew how much he was struggling, um, was so inspiring. And I just wow. said, look, I'm going to get to my wedding anniversary. And she came in, she brought me some trainers, which she knows, you know, I, I love my trainers. And <laughs> I just said, look, I know I've got nothing for you, but let's just live in this moment. That's the biggest present, you know, we can give each other. And we sat watching Love Island. Oh, man. Couples telling each other that they love each other after 10 days or so. <laughs> and here we were 12 days into isolation. And, you know, we talk about the vow through wow. sickness and health. And we were really living it. So I just started to break it down then from hour to hour. Just get through to the next hour. I was always terrified to go to sleep, Natasha, because I, I oh, was worried that I would never, ever wake up. And after two weeks, the alarm bells went off because when you go on an isolation ward, there's literally 10 rooms outside, 10 rooms outside, and all these people are fighting for their lives. And the alarm went off and Chantel came in on the night and said, you know, one of the other patients had died. And I was just terrified. It just it came home like um, it really did hit home to severity in the situation I was in. And my bloods were literally nothing. We weren't reacting very well to um, the chemotherapy, but I managed to start keeping my food down. And Chantel would always bring me all my vegetables in, my juices in. And within the space of two days, my blood shot up through the roof. Um, but prior to that, it was Father's Day on day 15. And... I'd not seen Lula for two weeks. And I said to Chantel, you bring her in after school because I feel like I'm ready to throw the towel in. Um, I'm really, I'm struggling. I'm, uh, we're not reacting well to it. I'm feeling terrible. I've now lost my hair. 
I've lost three and a half stone within two weeks and that I'm a bag of bones. And I need to see that little girl. I know she's going to be very, very shocked by my appearance. Um, she, we've FaceTimed and stuff like that, but, um, you know, to see me in person, it was going to knock her. But I needed 15 minutes with her. And I knew the doctors and the nurses would kick off when she brought her because anybody under 10 should be nowhere near that room. But I needed them 15 minutes with her just to maybe just reassure her. She came in, she gave me some grapes, she did the scephoscope, uh, Doc McStuffins was flavoured the month <laughs> then, so she was feeling like Doc. And out of nowhere, she just asked me straight away, she said, Daddy, are you going to die? Oh, my goodness. And I was like, wow. And as a man and as a, you know, a dad, to not be able to, to reassure your little girl there and then that you're going to be okay, um, it crushed me, but it was like a light bulb came on as well in the sense of, I always look at it like the candle was flickering. It really was, but that just ignited the fire. And I just said to her, like I've always said to her, I'm just going to give you, I'm going to give it my best. You know, nothing's ever guaranteed in this world, baby girl, but just know, like I'd spoken to Chantelle a couple of days ago before, I will never give up. Um, and that's all I can promise you. And within three days, my blood shot up through the roof. Mentally, I, cu- I went into a different realm. I just literally rose up. I started to get myself out of bed. I'd pretty much been bed bound. I started planning. Uh, you know, we talk about the, like uh, how powerful memories are and, you know, setting certain targets and goals. I started to do that. Um, I rang the architect. I told the architect to come in and visit me because we was in planning to renovate our house and I wanted to get back to that home as soon as possible. And then my assistant manager came in and visited me and said, look, Joe, what's the script? How are you feeling? Um, I said, I'm on the rise. I'm feeling like a phoenix. Um, <laughs> but I never thought about getting back to football. I just said, I'm going to get myself out of there as soon as possible. And then the doctors came in and said, your blood's have just taken, you know, they've gone through the roof. You can go tomorrow. Clutch for the bed. Wow. I clutched for the bed, Natasha. I was scared because that, that room, the, the temperature never changed. The windows never opened. You know, everything was regulated. The people would wash it down every one or two hours. And then I was going to have to face the big bad world again. Um, mm. And when I look back at it now, I left that Joe behind in that bed. I really did. Uh, I often feel like life now is life after death because I went in a boy and came out a man. Um, and when I walked out with Lula and Chantel arm in arm and I got that little bit of breeze and that Manchester rain, I felt alive again. Um, and it's a moment that I'll forever cherish because... I'll always go back to that now. You know, I think everybody's experienced certain emotions that isolation brings now in, you know, the situation we find ourselves in. I'll always draw back to that now and think, you know, it could always be worse. This is like so emotional. (laughs) I'm really trying to keep it together. Like it's so powerful and raw, Joe, honestly. Like just thank you for your honesty. 
It's um, all like it's all I can be now. Yeah, you know, I'm not perfect. Um, I'm sure I'm going to make mistakes in the future. I've learned a lot. A uh, very very humbling experience because I was the kid that knew it all, the cool kid, you know. Um, and life's just not like that. And I look at adversity yeah. now as an opportunity to grow instead of. Um, you know, go under and that might be in different areas if you like, but I know the experience that I've been through has made me a better human being. Absolutely. Like in the face of adversity comes actually some beautiful things do happen. And I know I've been in places where, you know, you think, we we like the Where only way, there's yeah. only what the only way is literally up. Yeah. And it is like you were saying before, setting small goals, like little targets, like, can I get up today? Can dress I, yourself, can I dress myself shower. today? You know, yep. people who are at home and having a tough time and, you know, while wow, you, you read and listen to the likes of your story. And for me, you know, that will live with me and go like, whoa, Joe can do this. I can get out of bed today. And this is why um, I say like, I'm no different to anybody else. Um, mm-hmm. When I talk about my strength now, you, everyone has it within them. You just might need to go a little bit deeper and do a little bit more soul searching, but you, you do have that strength in you. With everything you've been through, Joe, have you sought counselling and helped to come to terms with everything um, that, that has happened? So it's, it's no surprise that I do what I do now. So I mentor young professional athletes and businessmen um, and women because I understand the journey. I understand the problems that it can also come with and the emotions that you experience. But um, I did. I I seeked out a sports psychologist at the age of 21, 22 to try and get me to the levels where I felt like I should be in the game. And, And, you know, various coaches would say I should have played at. But initially, me and Martin, uh, a gentleman called Martin Robert Hall, worked on my game. But then the, for the last six or seven years of my career before it finished last year, um, we worked on life. And he would always be at the end of the phone for me to call and say certain things. And we talk about self-talk, you know, who you surround yourself with. Music's massive to me in my life and, you know, really listening to uplifting lyrics, um, targets, memories, things that you still want to achieve. And I still had one goal that I wanted to do. And, you know, we speak about it. I said at the age of 22, I want to score a really memorable goal um, that lives long in that kind of memory of so many people. And then I just want to have a little mess about and a a play on the pitch with my child. And this is at 21, 22 before Luda's even here. And then for me to score the goal on the end of the season that kept Rochdale up, it was like the ultimate survival story. But I just knew. I said, I threw this out years ago. And after everything that we've been through, that goal remained the same. You know, that focus, although there has been so many setbacks, remained the same. And I knew after it, when all the fans descended on the pitch and it was on Sky Sports, I just knew I had a little promise and a memory that I wanted to make with Lula. And 
she was the same. She was like, Daddy, when are all these people going to leave the pitch so we can have a kickabout? I said, you know, I don't think you quite understand this, what's happened <laughs> and how many people have just witnessed it. But we will have, you know, a little kickabout. And while everyone was celebrating in the changing rooms and, you know, it was massive for the club and I could say it was on Sky, so so many people did see it. Um, I sweated a little kickabout with my little girl. Oh um, man! It's something that she will remember because she was in that hospital with me. You know, yeah. she'd seen Daddy go from there to there within the space of eight months. But I would always suggest have you know a mentor or a counselor or a good friend that you confide can confide in because problem shared. You know, absolutely. He's uh, it's massive. I think we need to work harder on ourselves than anything else really and when I say work hard on ourselves actually it does it's not hard work once you get into it once you get used to opening up and talking about things that have impacted greatly in your life you know traumatic experiences um you know getting to getting to know like why do you self-sabotage why are you holding yourself back why aren't you stepping into your light and and fulfilling your greatness. Yeah. And I think everybody, the way society's built up now, it, 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 it's for you to fall. It's for you to compare. But I'll always say, you know, everyone's got a story that can change the world. It might just be a story that you share with somebody and it, that power can never really be measured. But, you know, you might say something or give someone a piece of advice or open up about a certain situation that you've experienced and they can draw strength off that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to to talk to, to some people that have either heard my story or been at an event where I've spoken and they, they tell me what they've gone on and achieved. And I live by like a mantra, don't live life to survive, live life to thrive. And that is exactly that. And hence why the book's called Darkness and Light. There will be dark times. That's inevitable. But don't ever let those troublesome and challenges and obstacles define you because real strength is in, you know, admitting vulnerability. And that's massive. And, you know, you never, ever know what your story might do for somebody. But until you share it, until you open up and be honest, um, then you start to see the inspiration people take from it. Joe, have you got any advice that you would give to the listener from what you've been through in your life's journey? I would say so even more so now because I really really struggled when I do talks. um, I really struggled to convey that emotion that I experienced through isolation, but everybody sampled it now. So the one thing I would say that really helped me get through it was setting targets, little, so small as well, just because when your routine gets, you know, flipped upside down, I often think discipline is is crucial. But if you write it down and you hold yourself accountable to the little things, even if you don't tick everything off, those things can be pushed to the, you know, to the next day. Um, but be very, very wary of who you surround yourself with. I think it's huge. I think what you consume um, and just, it may sound really simple, but eat right, plenty of water, a 
I don't, I don't really watch too much TV, if I'm being honest. Um, listen to some podcasts. I'm going to say that now because there's so many amazing stories out there that you don't know about. Um, and like you say, give yourself, forgive yourself, but give yourself some time to just reflect um, and process because life is so fast and there is so many demands on us. Um on a day-to-day basis, but just give yourself a bit of time during the week to set some goals and reflect on what you've achieved because you'd be very, very surprised. When you look back on your life, it's incredible what you've achieved and overcome. And even when I thought I'd finished the book and we had that last chapter where I'd scored the goal and everybody saw it, the publisher, Alex Fenn, who um, was incredible and he co-writing it with me, he said, I think you need to go and see your dad. And I was like, what? I don't need to go see my dad. Like, you know, everything I've achieved without him. And I'm an amazing father, great husband, wonderful brother and son. Although they might not say the same at times. <laughs> um, I need to go see my dad. He was like, yeah, there's a bit of healing there that you need to go and do. So I traveled six hours to go see my dad in prison and spent two hours asking him some questions just to, to find out, you know, where he was and that was a conversation that was long long overdue wow you got the answers that you needed I did and I I think I I found some inner peace I don't think he actually had all the answers and again we talk about those standards I put my standards on my dad and I think that's unfair because he has his own journey and his own issues that he has to deal with um, and maybe might never ever. Um, but, you know, I, I went in there to speak to him as a man. But like I say, there was issues there that I should have overcome earlier on in my life, but maybe I wasn't emotionally ready to do that. That has just struck such a chord with me when you said you put your standards on him. It's, I'm definitely, um, yeah. It is, it, I, I heard it when I listened to, there's a motivational speaker called Eric Thomas and he's quite intense and he's American, he's quite intense. and um, But he talks about that. He talks about there was an issue with um, his father and it's, it's something that a lot of men, if they are listening, a lot of your issues are from your childhood. Uh, and it's no different to women, but I, I often feel that women deal with their emotions better. They let their emotions out more. Um, and we as men tend to bottle it up and you can only bottle it up for so long uh, because I look back now and think, was I unwell or did I become unwell because of traumas? And we know full well that stress and trauma has can have a physical impact on you as well. And, those are questions that I'm never going to be able to answer, but I make sure now that I live, um, you know, a very disciplined life. I enjoy my life. I really do embrace the good times as well. And I, I stay present in the moment. I see so many people taking pictures of amazing things and I'm just like, take it in with your own eyes, you know, because when I was really struggling, that's all I ever had is memories and the, the, the drive to create memories in the future. And I also know you're a big advocate now of not just telling your story, but making sure that people have got something in place 
God forbid, if anything ever happened to them. Yeah, it's, um, I did a talk for a company uh, 18 months ago called Bespoke Health. And those guys specialise in, in health insurance. And the first time I was diagnosed, I had an agent and a, a financial advisor and they'd give me critical illness papers and life insurance. And I was the I'll do it tomorrow guy. And I didn't sign the papers. And when I came home and got diagnosed, that was the first thing I searched the house for. And they were there on the, the table. Um, we hadn't signed them. And I missed out on nearly 700 grand. And that would have been life-changing for us because I never, ever want anybody to feel that pressure that I felt then. It was nearly as bad as the diagnosis itself because I know if we would have been able to relieve the financial stresses and really focus on, you know, getting through the treatment that would have helped us out massively. So I teamed up with them and straight after that talk and started, you know, spreading the message, even if it's just a small policy, you know, we talk about critical illness and the numbers that come with cancer. I think everyone's had a, a bit of a, an awakening to health this year. And I just say, you know, just make sure you've got something in place that it's not going to solve all the problems, but it really can go a long way to relieving the uh, pressures and the stresses. Um, because if you know, if you're, you know, you're a parent and anything happens, you know, God forbid to your kid and there's a, there's a little payout there. Like you, you just know that you can step away from work. You know, you can even walk away from work if you need to, um, to just focus all that stress and energy because it's so, so important um, that there is something in place. So I get asked to do loads of stuff, um, but that really struck a chord with me because I know that feeling that I felt. Joe, thank you so, so much for joining me today. You are a complete warrior. And an inspiration, like, just go out there, tell your story, help people, keep doing what you're doing. And thank you for being here today. No, it was an absolute pleasure, Natasha. And I, like I said at the top of it, you keep doing what you're doing um, because it's amazing. And the more stories you get out there, you know, the more lives you're touching. Thanks for listening to this episode of Live Better with Natasha. If you have enjoyed the show, please give it a five-star review on whichever platform you get your podcasts. It helps us more than you can imagine to reach more people and share important lessons and conversations about mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. You can also connect with Natasha and become part of the Live Better movement right now by clicking the link in the show notes. If you're serious about scaling your personal or business brand, then you need to be producing audio. Yes, you need a podcast. Podcasting is exploding right now and means that you can reach a global audience, be seen as the expert in your marketplace, collaborate with world-renowned influencers, turn followers, fans, and listeners into paying clients, and open up a world of opportunities. So when you're ready to add the power of podcasting for your brand and business, check out the Ultimate Podcast Group, the team that make this this very podcast, Ultimate Podcast Group, your one-stop full-service agency for all your production needs. For more information, click the link in the show notes now.